go. Sniper arrow on the guard. It strikes true. The guard drops. I move to the doorway. Detect traps. None detected. I enter. Left flank. Right. One hobgoblin facing east. Backstab. Double damage. Critical hit. He's dead. Footsteps behind the door to the north. I notch two arrows. I climb the walls to get above the door. Five goblins enter from the north. I fire. Both arrows hit. Cleave. You kill one and wound another. I drop on the last one and grapple. You got hold of him. This one is for Crouton. With his dying breath, he utters, The Dark Lord. We'll kill you all. Wait, these things can talk? I want two taken alive. I want to try something. Welcome to another episode of Let's Roll, the show where we discuss various role-playing games with guests and fellow tabletop gamers. I'm Siskoid, and in this episode, we continue our discussion of Shift World, our GURPS-fueled campaign that tries to use as many source books and settings as possible. We've already talked about Old West, Auto Duel, Mars, Ice Age, and Mecha, and today we're talking about GURPS Steampunk, GURPS Vikings, and I guess GURPS Atlantis was in the mix as well. We'll just mention that a bit. And to do this, I've invited one of the players who experienced it in the first place, Daniel Put-Wellet. Hi, Put. Good chap. We're going to do the steampunk thing. Yeah. So if, if we remind people what Shift World is, it was this scheme of mine to uh, use as many GURPS source books as I could within the same campaign. The characters lived in a world that would change genre and setting every so often in what we called a shift. And then, of course, the characters realized this was happening, but nobody else did. They were sort of the glitch in the Matrix or something. They had to recreate their characters every so often, and we're up to this part where they'd just been in fighting robots and giant fighting robots, and suddenly we go from super high-tech to steampunk, which is... A Victorian high tech? <laughs> so Put is here today and Bebert isn't. Beb was usually with us through this part of it, but uh, he was, uh, he'd left the campaign, as he said last time, and uh, was replaced by another player, Sly, who uh, was not with us today, of course. I guess that means that this podcast is a very good representation of the shift itself, Bebel not being here. We had to be respectful of what happened. <laughs> right, we're shifting to what I call phase two of the of the of the shift world and we're talking about playing steampunk first and after the break we'll talk about vikings to see what opportunities each of those genres bring but i consider this phase two of shift world the middle phase or i guess the weakest phase narratively i don't know if you agree because i'm adding to the mystery of the shifts and why the characters are suffering these changes. And I'm adding supporting cast characters that stuck around till the end, really. But the main villain was apparently dead, and we settle into an Adventure of the Week format until we get Bebert back. So I say that's weaker, it's less memorable, maybe. But did you have a similar impression? I think I would agree for sure with the less memorable. Before looking at our preparation documents for today's podcast, I was trying to remember Steampunk and Vikings, and I could not remember what the stories were. The elements you've mentioned, like those new characters, those I do remember. I remember this phase being much about reacting to the departure of Willie J's character. I remember it being about learning more about shifts and the integration of the new shifter 12. But what 
else was happening during the story, I can't really remember. But definitely looking at the documents, a lot of important things happened during this phase. It's just that story element-wise, there was a lot of important things. But story-wise, not so much was um, recorded in my memory. I feel kind of the same. There was like, I was looking through those notes. I'm going, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I can see how I got to that. I understand my own mind. It makes sense. This is the kind of idea I would still be having today. Whereas when I was reading the notes, I was like, we did this? I don't remember any of this. <laughs> mm. And some of it I don't remember at all. Because you just get into a, a certain groove where you just, okay, well, we need a, the next adventure, the next adventure. And I feel like the original chapters, it's like anything. You know, like your first of anything you will remember, like your first comic book you will remember really well. But then you'll be reading tons of comics, you know, 10 years later, more comics than you ever read before. And it's, it just becomes vague. They're not as memorable. Yeah, they all like merge together. Yeah, and I feel that's the same with a role-playing campaign. You'll, you'll remember when you built the thing mm-hmm. and when it was new and fresh and myster- more mysterious. And then maybe you'd forget certain parts of it that are less memorable for whatever reason. Okay, well, first, before we get into this too deeply, uh, let's talk a little bit about GURPS Steampunk itself, the source book. Uh, GURPS Steampunk was written by William H. Stoddard and published by Steve Jackson Games in 2000. It won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Supplement that year. It was soon accompanied by licensed publications in the world of Castle Falkenstein by Phil Masters and then followed by Steam Tech, a supplement by the same author, uh, that is to say Stoddard, and a booklet called GURPS Screampunk that mixed in horror by Joe Ramsey. But though I'd recommend Steam Tech, which is sort of designed as a catalog of devices you might order from, all you really need, in addition to your trusty GURPS basic set, of course, is GURPS Steampunk. It starts with extensive factual information about the Victorian age before going into campaign possibilities that arise from steampunk technology and alternative histories. It uses the existing GURPS technology level mechanics but introduces the concept of a diversion, specifically setting most GURP steampunk campaigns at TL5 plus one. So TL5 would be, you know, the, the Old West, the Victorian era, but plus one is the historical age of steam plus all these ahistorical innovations uh, that are part of the genre, which uh, have many of the effects of later technology levels, but with a a sort of antiquated twist. It ends with four possible alternate histories for suggested campaigns, each with a date of divergence from the real history. We've got Etheria, which has interplanetary travel, just like Space 1889. We've got Iron, a dystopian Marxist industrial timeline. Kabbalah, which has golems, and Providence, uh, which has a religious secret society at the heart of it. I went with none of these. Instead, my template is uh, Alan Moore's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, and we'll talk about what that meant for the story. But for you, what are the tenets of steampunk? I think top hats and mustaches. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, to be more serious, I guess it's an era thing, right? So anything like late 19th century. I might get crucified for this, but I don't think it has to be in the British Isles or the Great Empire. I feel like, for instance, Wild Wild West is a steampunk movie, even though it takes place in uh, America. And just the inclusion of mechanic-based robotics like ste- that work on steam instead of electricity. I guess it's also about the aesthetic, right? The idea of high society and being fancy and, and polite and classy. 
So I guess that's steampunk for me. Yeah, well, what's punk about it is maybe that, the class system. Yes, you can play those hoity-toity, monocle-wearing, mustache guys. You've got characters living in that upper crust, and then obviously that means there are people underneath mm -hmm. suffering. You know, it's like it's Dickens. I feel like they put a lot of emphasis about the different classes in cyberpunk. Like, cyberpunk is all about going against the establishments of mega corporations but is it the same way for steampunk do they try to encourage people to play lower class that are fighting against a higher class because i think it's the opposite right it's like okay. you're playing the gentleman adventurers who are independently wealthy and they can go on adventures and have all these gadgets because that was my impression of it yeah. too but does that mean it wouldn't be more like a steam anti-punk <laughs> yeah what what is punk about it you know it's like i know yeah. that some of the steampunk elements are like you know you got like your babbage engines or, you know you got like computers and maybe you want to have uh, characters who have cyber tech but it's not cyber tech it's you know you, you're equipped with a steam arm yeah you know Something like that. You know, there's probably elements to make it look like, I know the in the aesthetic, it kind of looks like people have incorporated metal into them. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think what is punk about steampunk, if anything, if it's not just a riff on cyberpunk, I think the class system still exists. You've got to have those gutters where Jack the Ripper is killing people. But at the same time, you're not asked to play those characters, right? You're not necessarily, I don't think you're normally called to play the, the street samurai. The ruffian. Or they're wage slaves, or the I, I'm using cyberpunk terminology, but you know you're not playing the, those deckers you know, mm -hmm. that are living on the street and against the system. You're you're within the system. You're at the upper end of the system and profiting from the system. So I think is that punk? You're right. I wonder. I think what is punk about it is a sort of dehumanization. I, I'm I'm talking about cyberpunk, obviously, but the loss of humanity because you got robot parts because society has determine that you are the dregs and there's a there's something punk about that and in steampunk i agree you don't have to be playing it in the british isles or to have it be the british empire but the british empire creates this it creates this class system in a Absolutely. way and yeah. you're forced to play it's a little bit like being forced to play a nazi character in, in world war ii or something you know you're, you're actually not necessarily villainous in this case but when we look back at colonialism at the British Empire, profiting from that system makes you something of a villain. And the fact that the characters or the players know this because they have a better appreciation for history now, maybe that is a punk element. That is a dehumanizing element. There is something that maybe you are playing against the system just because you know of the history and that makes these gentlemen uh, adventurers that you're playing, maybe they have more like a modern thought process. Mm -hmm. They end up... Uh... Wanting yeah. to break the system from inside it. Exactly. I mean, you know, it's like I think players will be less racist than the Victorian characters that they're <laughs> normally they would be playing, right? Right. And that may be something. I don't know. I, it may be something in there. I know that when we played, one of the adventures that we plumly forgot was uh, a connection <laughs> to the uh, Boer War that was going on oh, yeah. at the time. That's a colonial conflict. You know, in a way, the British Empire is the villains in that thing. Absolutely. And we didn't go to the war, but we had like this secret weapon. It's a little bit like it is League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the film. <laughs> uh, <laughs> not that I'd seen it, but the, the fact that there's a, a super weapon being developed that is just above the, the, the science possible because it was still an atomic bomb type threat in connection to the Boer War and the fact that the heroes stop it. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember what the details were. We still have characters who are perhaps sympathetic 
to the colonies as opposed to being true colonialists. But I don't mm -hmm. know. That all depends on what the players want to play. But it's a good question. What is punk about it? Yeah, because for me, punk was always about rebelling against the system. But the idea of dehumanization is also a very interesting theme in punk that I didn't think about. I mean, it has to be something because you're definitely not playing against the system. I don't know. In most steampunk games, I, I just feel like maybe we're playing it wrong. Could be. <laughs> So I do call it a League of Extraordinary Gentlemen because that's how I tried to, to really play it. I was reading the Alan Moore series at the time. I tried to use as many literary characters as I could within the short span of time that we did play it. Uh, we had Phileas Fogg was in it, the Jules Verne character. Bartleby the Scrivener from Melville was a character. Captain Nemo has his stats right there in the book. So I think that's part of the inspiration. I had Ahab and Moby Dick as just... Uh, there's a point where you're in the Nautilus and you look out the, the, the window and you see Moby Dick go by with Ahab strapped to the whale. We're obviously we're after the, the the novel. I would throw in these kinds of little literary bits or cameos. I think there's Scrooge at one point. Scrooge, who uh, there's a murder, and uh, Scrooge is the neighbor, and he's really worried for his neighbor because this is after a Christmas Carol. After Scrooge has become a good person, uh, so he calls the cops. So yeah, I tried to fit these kinds of characters that are from either Victorian or even American literature from the time. Maybe I'm just like pleasing myself doing this because I was a you know an English lit major i don't know how that played to every player every player at this point being just you and etienne yeah the older and the younger brother well i think it's fun because when you're doing rpgs that are very genre focused i think it's important to throw in a lot of cliches of the genre okay i was watching recently somebody from youtube give tips on how to properly sell a genre as a gm his advice was just that he was like throw as many like tropes as you can because even though it might seem like it would be a cringe idea and everybody would see you coming, most likely the player's reaction will be positive to that. If you want to do an action movie, you want to have stuff like campy taglines. You hear a campy tagline, you're like, Haha, that's, that's good because we're in an action movie. You won't be like, oh, how cringe a tagline. Pff, I should have seen this coming. This is so bad. Like, no, we want to play the genre. So we want to have the genre's tropes. I think... Um, including many elements of that era helps us recognize and remind us, oh, we are in this genre. So it really helps with the immersion, I think. I, I think you're hitting upon a theme that connects or could connect steampunk and Vikings today because it seems like very disparate genres to, to discuss in the same episode, unless you're thinking they both have a Navy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things about shift world is that we only spent time in any given genre or setting, you know, a, a very short amount of time, a few adventures, sometimes just one big adventure. And that was it. And then we switched it up, which is part of the format. So what I wanted to do very often was throw everything at the wall, every, you know, everything that I could put into it because we're not coming back to this. So any idea that I have that is steampunkish or Western or Mecca or whatever it was, I want to have as many of those tropes in there because I'm not going to get to do them, you know, over a, a period of time, like a, a year or two, right? We're just doing this for a few weeks and then we're out. So I want you to, as players, to have as much of the setting and genre as possible within that short amount of time. So I feel like maybe the way that I treated steampunk or Vikings or really any of them was with that approach in mind. 
I mean, a kitchen sink approach, if you will. <laughs> anyway, that was my approach to steampunk, certainly, with all of these literary references for sure. I think you're right. Context is important. There are certain contexts in which you want to be doing that. But if you're going to be sticking to something for a longer duration, you don't want to blow all your load at the start. Yeah. Right, exactly. But when you when it's just like a one-time thing, by all means, blow your load. Yeah. Uh, so... Uh, <laughs> Let's talk about the character changes. So the, the Spade brothers, at this point, okay, so Babar is gone. That means Willie J, the middle brother, who was really the link between the two, is gone. And uh, we have the younger brother, your character, Ace, and the older brother, played by Etienne, uh, John, or Jonathan. Uh, so you guys were suddenly left alone. How does that change the dynamic? I think Willie J, as you said, it was like the middleman between Johnny and Ace. And so a lot of interactions would go through Willie J so that it would remain uh, civil. But uh, now that Willie J was not there, I think certainly in Ace's case, he would blame Johnny for it. And therefore, it raised tensions between the two brothers. And if I remember correctly, they even got into a fist fight okay. not too long after Willie J left. I think as the <laughs> as the blimp was carrying Willie J off to Canada, Ace took a swing at Johnny if I remember correctly, and they had an actual fist fight between the two of them. So the very first thing that we did. In other yes, words. I believe so. I believe that's how we started the story without Willie J. Definitely uh, tensions between the two brothers. And it might have gotten stuck into that were it not for another target for Ace's frustrations to show up. So the introduction of the new NPC, Horace Lorquet, who was, I guess, Ace's father-in-law, him showing up and being very judgmental of Ace made it so Ace had to concentrate on that rather than his anger for his older brother. Right, right. And this is a character that stayed until the end. Obviously, he's the father of the, your love interest. We kept him around. He was played by um, he was played by John Goodman. So. <laughs> I so, forgot about that. According to my notes, he was playing. Yeah, I forgot that when we came back to the game, you know, years later, I didn't play that off as, as much as I could have. There was a template, you know, there was a character, a John Goodman character in uh, the West Wing that I apparently, according to my notes, was it's like, do that. So I don't know if I kept it up or what, but... Um, I think maybe Horace Lorquet's inclusion in the story was the most important element we added during Steampunk. Possibly, although... Long-term-wise. Yeah, uh, although there is... Well, we'll talk about what we remember of the, the story. As far as the changes in characters, like, you, as usual, your character, a roguish, you know, gambler, uh, ne'er-do-well kind of romantic hero. Yes, and my reputation, instead of being... Uh, a reputation as a ruffian or not respecting codes of honors or I was just I had a reputation as being impolite okay, <laughs> okay so we did play up the the sort of Britishness uh, like you did when you gave yourself a little uh, a speech pattern at the beginning of the show we did kind of do that stopping for tea and whatnot probably there was a bit of mockery of the, the stiff upper lip of the British as portrayed in some of these stories because otherwise, I mean, your character doesn't change that much. I gotta no. say, there, it's just like this is a universal type that doesn't have to change. Sometimes he's a pilot, like a hotshot pilot, and sometimes not, depending on the focus of the story. But otherwise, that's a type that fits really any given setting. Exactly. I mean, he was coming from anime. So there was definitely a lot of changes in like the exaggerations of his quirks and the types of like 
like he didn't have a huge mech robot, although Steampunk, I guess he could have. He was still very much so like his old West version. Which is the same era. So that kind of yeah. makes sense. With John, who was always raised by another culture. In this case, he was raised in India. Um, so he had some of the, the, this mysticism, meditation practices. So that made both of you kind of more restrained, certainly than in the anime version, but similar, very similar to what you used to be. Okay, so you were already talking about what you remembered from this campaign, this setting. Uh, including Simone's father uh, as a new character who becomes very important because we also killed the mayor. So in this case, there's no, it's not the mayor of London. We just made like Paradise, which was our town that we kept returning to. In this case, it's called Paradise Works. It was a place where there were inventions and smelting and, you know, to go with the, within London. So there, that's that steampunk concept. Uh, and the guy who ran the place was the mayor of the old west town and that just like, kept changing as well during the campaign he is killed so there's a murder and and uh, simone's father will eventually replace him as the main stockholder or the mayor depending on what we're doing so he becomes the boss of the place you know so he will always be an impediment to your particular romantic pursuits Another interesting thing about it was that in my character sheet, one of the disadvantages that I had was having a enemy, which before this shift was Oily Pete. Uh, but I had just killed Oily Pete. So now we had a discussion of do I take that disadvantage off, buying it off with points, or do I keep it and there's a new enemy that shows up? So I decided I wanted to keep it. But at this point in time, I wasn't sure who the new enemy would be be and i thought maybe for a while that it would be simon's father and instead it was greasy gill oily pete's brother or near copy you know just to keep yes. it who makes tattoos in greece whatever that means is that what he did and that's what it says on his character sheet that one of his quirks is he makes tattoos in greece <laughs> so i think i think he's just like so greasy so sooty uh so dirty that he just like draws things within the soot or something. Okay. That may be it. I can't tell from what that note means now, but at the time it made sense. And you also, like in a duel, you cut off his ear. It's steampunk, so he's got like a metal ear, a cornet coming out of his head to better hear. So, you know, we played with this technology. And from what I remember, and a lot of this was predicated by, at the time, GURP Steampunk is a fairly new book. It came out in 2000. We were playing in the early 2000s. And um, they were really pushing it because they won awards, etc. It was probably at the, the time the best steampunk resource, steampunk game. There were many steampunk games that came out later, but this may have been one of the better ones, the more obviously the more universal one. So they were pushing it in various ways, especially on Pyramid Online, which was the in-house magazine. Uh, and that was full of articles that supported this particular genre, including stats for Phileas Fogg as himself and as an automaton. So I pulled that and put that in the story. It sort of dictated my approach from the beginning, you know. The missions format that we've fallen into in Mecha is, I, 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 for me, I'm not sure if it's easier, obviously, when you can tell the characters, this is your mission. So that's an inn. You don't, you don't have to be sitting at, a, uh, at an inn somewhere, <laughs> you know, and, and get interested in things. Yeah, you don't really have to, like, weave the adventure into the general storyline because no. there's already a mechanic to do that. Right. And I think there are many games that work with missions and they work very well and I've used them and we're, what we're playing right now is essentially mission-based or will be. It's an easy out. But with Shift World, 
the beginnings of it, the phase one, was not very mission-based. You know, we just let the characters get interested in the things they got interested in. And, and then sometimes it'd be like a mission that would be kind of more scripted. But it felt more natural than just like, this is the mission of the week. And with this phase two, which really started with Mecha earlier, where you suddenly, you're not just private citizens. And I understand that John was already in the service of the state as a, a sheriff originally, etc. But it, it starts to feel like the brothers or the, the, the PCs are, they're being told we need this to be done. And then they do it. They're the heroes of their particular organization slash town. And they go off on missions rather than get interested in this and that, which I felt was more the purview of the first phase. In the first phase, it was more like, what the what are the players interested in? And we'll improvise around it. Right. It was about getting to know the area of Paradise and its NPCs. Right. And then in the second phase, we've got all that sorted and uh, we want to go on missions. Although I'm looking at the notes and I'm saying, okay, yeah, that atomic bomb mission was its own thing sort of thing. But it also introduced the Phileas Fogg automaton. That automaton has a, is coded with the same symbols that are in your parents' diary, which, uh, which can't be read. You know, you're following that track where what is the mystery of shifting? What was the mystery of our, what our parents' role in this shifting? Did they know about it? Their diary is very mysterious. You get that decoded by a translator using the robot's inner cylinder as a decoder ring. And then you sort of find out, oh, this is written in Atlantean and this robot was sent by Atlantis and Atlantis exists and they seem to know about shifting, which will connect you to Captain Nemo, who will take you down to Atlantis, which is an underwater city in this genre and so on. So you're still following the clues. I think that's the bigger story is always what the hell is going on with the shifting stuff. And relating it to your parents and creating that legacy that's been carried over to you. Right. It's like doing mission style makes it a little more episodic, but you still got to keep in mind what the series, the point of the series is in the season. Right. And, and in steampunk, I don't, we still get all of that. So my impression, because I don't remember as many details of the stories as I did earlier stories, I always felt like, okay, maybe I went into the mission stuff. And we're not following the big story, but it's not true. Looking at these notes, everything is interwoven. I, I'm happy with what I'm looking at here. It's like my memory is cheating me out of, okay, the, you know, this was pretty good work. We don't remember the mission stuff because in the long plan, it wasn't really important. It was just about the answers rather than the journey. Yeah. So what we remember about Vikings and steampunk is the stuff that ended up being important in the long run. But the stuff that was just important for that one session, we kind of just easily forgot. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the problem with going for episodic stuff and, and mission style adventures is your players in the long run <laughs> we are talking like what 20 years after yeah yeah the players will not necessarily remember the stuff you did that was important for that one session but what was important for the long run we do remember and this part of the campaign brought us to atlantis
I want to talk a little bit about GURPS Atlantis. This one was written by Phil Masters, published in 2001. It's a lot like the Mars source book we described a few episodes ago in that it features various versions of the lost city, whether pseudo-historical as described by Plato or fantasy or Aquaman and Namor's superhero version or steampunk, which is how it got in here, as well as the information on all the other sunken islands and continents from mythology. So it's a fun read, even for someone who's not planning to use it as uh, gaming material. It's just You could just read it as, you know, information about Atlantis through the ages and in various myths and stories. I used it just like I did GURPS Mars. So we had like a shift storm as the heroes try to escape Atlantis that changes it from one of the settings to another in succession. So I get to use many parts of the source book you know, in in a certain sequence. And this is where we meet another shifter. He's a prisoner of the Atlanteans when you get there. And it turns out that uh, not only is he a shifter like you are, he was shifting before you were. And he also had psionic powers, precognition mostly, which plays into some of the stories where he has flashes of something about to happen, which was a way to lay in more story threads. His name was 12 because he was an uh, an orphan who never really had a name. Yeah, the big secret, the big mystery, the big shocker was that he was shifting at least two shifts before you were. So it's not like the world started shifting. It's always been shifting, but we just now, you know, clued into it. What was your reaction to this twist? To contextualize, we as players did not know why we were shifting. It was the big mystery of the campaign. In a lot of ways, it was the big bad. I was trying to figure out what was going on and why we were shifting. And we had all these hypotheses, like trying to guess what it was. And meeting 12 was interesting to know that there was another shifter, but it didn't really break any hypotheses because we knew that the big bad Jeremiah Dark was also a shifter. So we knew that we weren't the only ones already. But finding out that he was shifting before us kind of blew our minds because we were convinced that shifting was due to an event that happened at a specific time that made us all into shifters. But the idea that some people were shifters before that event kind of like threw that idea that theory out of the window so i remember we were kind of like dumbfounded by it you know like sly did not return to the campaign in phase three when we you know we we tried to include the other guys but uh their schedules just wouldn't allow it they were interested but it it just couldn't make it work i don't know where the story would have necessarily gone if we kept all of that but in this case yeah i thought it was pretty clever of me Uh, but also it, it meant that your parents had been shifters even though they were dead now they had been shifters they knew about shifting so obviously they were shifting from before it's not like it could have been an intermittent event but this proved that it wasn't it's just like you became aware suddenly you were activated the other thing that i proposed in here which ugh, i really had trouble getting it all to work in phase three, is that the Atlanteans know about shifting. The parents' book was in Atlantean, and the Atlanteans obviously trigger a shift storm or something. You know, they seem to know what, what's going on. And it got us thinking that we might have been descendants of Atlanteans, I remember. Okay, that could have been it, right? And it was always like the hard part, because I don't know what my plans were back then. I did not note it down. Did you even have them? Yes, I'm sure I did. Uh, I did not introduce this willy-nilly, but... I I think what I wanted at that point, from what I can gather, is Jeremiah Dark, the big villain, was dead. And even though I brought him back in phase three, he was never dead. Ha ha ha. 
I think the, the point was he was dead. In phase two, we did really kill him. So I needed to replace him with a new big bad. And the new big bad was going to be the Atlanteans. I who see. may have been at that point the engineers of the shifting, that they may have been responsible for this broken world. Then instead of one guy who was pretty evil, I would have had a society, a secret society sending agents, and that, that could have been, you know, that could have been the thing. It would have um, transitioned really well later on when we shift towards GURPS time travel. Right, where there's a an evil uh, organization of, of time travelers who are trying to ensure their own timeline, they, they would have been the Atlanteans. And uh, and maybe Jeremiah Dark was, I think he's in my time travel notes as maybe coming back then because he's part of another timeline where he doesn't die or something. That would have been a way to bring him back. I'm not sure, but I feel like the Atlanteans were supposed to be the new big bat. Anyway, I had trouble connecting all of this. In, in the end, they are still part of the final solution, but they're more of a on the side of it, you know, they're just like, like they, they originated the technology or it's so it seems, and then your parents got a hold of it, etc. But we'll talk about that much later when we address those chapters. A soundtrack notes. We haven't talked about that because at this point it started getting difficult for me. I, I think. Why so? I don't know. It's like when it's historical, like modern music is easy to put into things that I feel like I've seen, I've seen those movies. You know, even a Western, you can put modern music in there. There's just enough country Western today, etc. Those sounds. But when I think of the British Empire, Victorian era, the sort of show tunes that they had, etc. Uh, I, I don't know. So it, there weren't a lot of, and still aren't, a lot of steampunk movies. Mm. So finding the proper soundtrack for those things, just like copying the music of a certain steampunk movie, I don't know, it wasn't accessible. I'll talk more about this in Game Master advice later in the show. To me, it feels like I look at these selections, it's like they're very eclectic, they're very strange. I was obviously working at the French CBC at the time, I was scouring the music library there, and there are a lot of international selections, very strange music. The underwater theme, for example, was played on this very strange instrument by this strange artist. Stuff that I would not necessarily have thought of myself. I was just like looking for music that might fit. And we get the few selections in the show notes. Not only will you see the character sheets and, and maybe some pages from the books that we're covering, but also put the link to the uh, YouTube playlist of all the music that we used in Steampunk and then Vikings. People can actually listen to the, the musical soundscape. I will say that the first track, the theme you picked for Steampunk was a very strong choice. That song, I still recognize all the time when I hear it. I feel like that one's really good. The rest of them have no place in my memory. <laughs> That's a weird thing for you to say because I had trouble finding it to put it on the playlist like because I didn't have a name for it. You know, like I obviously I ripped it off a, a CD at that point, you know, so my files call it steampunk theme. That's, that's not helpful. And <laughs> so that did not help find it. No. <laughs> so I tried to Shazam it did not work. Max Romero from the network actually found it for me with another, oh, really? well, he used another, thanks, Max. yeah, thanks. He used another software for it. I, I'm not sure what it came up as part of the ants score, the movie ants. And I was convinced listening to it today that it must have been used for so many other things because I can easily imagine it as a theme for like any kind of kid spy movie or any kind of weird science show. And I looked it up 
and I cannot find it being used in anything but ants and I guess our game. So it, it lives in my mind in a place that is so recognizable that I'm convinced that it's a super popular song. It's weird to me because I've never really seen Ants. I'm not sure I've seen it or the whole of it. I don't know why I picked up that CD to rip because it doesn't scream steampunk at me. It's a mystery as to how I ended up picking it. I agree that it's it's a good theme song, theme music for what we were doing. It's just enough. Because it has a lot of like adventure and weird sounds in it at the same time. Like I can see it as a Doctor Who song as well. Yeah, it's adventure, but it's also kind of a little mechanical in a way. And I, that's how it fits the steampunk theme. And, you know, ants are industrious and we're talking about the age of industry. Nice connection. It may, Well, what was I thinking at the time? So I know I'm an insane genius, but <laughs> <laughs> is that, was that the connection? No idea. Any lessons that uh, you learned from this particular setting? No, nothing really comes to mind. Yeah, for me, I think the shortcut of having guest stars to create the world is something that I used here, what I usually would use in a like a superhero campaign. You want to see Batman, you want to see Superman, you want you want you you want connections to the superhero universe. Well, what is the universe that you're working in? Like, if we were doing a Star Wars game. You kind of want to see some, at least some, you know, background characters that you would recognize. And that just mm. helps cement the world and make the players feel like they're part of it. It's a reminder of the universe you're in. Right. And I think that's what I did with all of these cameos are actually starring roles for Victorian era literary characters. Okay. So, well, that was GURPS Steampunk. We'll take a short promo break when we come back. GURPS Vikings. Who's editing? A thought experiment in which Siskoid and his guests appoint themselves editors of a comic book line at DC Comics. But the joke's on them, because they can only use the characters of a specific issue of Who's Who, and in fact must use them. Great ideas? Yes, we think so. Cool reinventions? Of course. Crisis fatigue? We guarantee it. Who's editing? Now on its own feed, only at the Fire & Water Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. We're back. We're still talking Shift World with my guest, Daniel Putwellet. And now we're talking about Gerb's Vikings, because uh, when we got out of Steampunk Atlantis, the characters jumped back aboard Nemo's Nautilus, except now it's Leif Erikson's Viking longboat. So um, before we get into it, some details on Gerb's Vikings. In the early 90s, Steve Jackson Games decided to stop publishing adventures and instead put out setting source books. One of the early ones, this was 1991, was Gerv's Vikings by Graham Davis. Uh, that's the edition I have, though uh, they've redesigned it in 2002. Same information, but certainly prettier. In the book, you get everything you need to run Viking campaigns, whether historical, cinematic, fantasy, or truly mythic. As usual for these books, great care is given to the culture, uh, not just what axes they use or what monsters are part of the folklore, but what games they played, what food they ate, uh, what was a village like, what was their legal system. And that really fueled how I approached it, I think. Initial thoughts put, uh, because I, I know sword and sorcery is one of the genres you have the least enthusiasm for today. 
what about then and does, I guess my question is, does this cultural overlay take it far enough from D&D, for example, to make it more interesting? My problem isn't necessarily with sword and sorcery, but more with high fantasy. Okay. Because stuff like Conan and barbarians and Vikings and anything with muscular women I love. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Taking a setting and changing it even just a little bit bringing it to a different culture a different location a different time zone not time zone but time era absolutely like fixes the problem for me i think like my problem with high fantasy is just that maybe not so much now but back then it was just overdone like the only kind of rpg you would ever hear about was dnd and this was before 5e. So it was just D&D and everybody was just doing dungeon crawling. Every elf had a bow and arrow. Like it was just Lord of the Rings inside a dungeon. But now people will take D&D and will keep the same classes and races, but will put it in different universes, different settings and explore more modern stories. And, and I'm okay with that. That I find a lot of fun. But so yes, Viking I was excited about for sure. It's not like... When you announced we're going to be doing Vikings, I didn't think, oh, this is going to be boring because it's just magic and swords. Okay, so that's good. I, I agree with every sentiment that you, you just expressed. Especially the muscular women. Yes, but um, okay. <laughs> I admit. But, <laughs> but, but really, in terms of the, the campaign, it's like when you're, you're looking at a specific culture, and we would do it again. We, we had in phase three, we did Greece, ancient Greece, or mythic Greece, really. The country, not the movie. Imagine. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, you get this more specific culture working for you. I don't know. The feeling is completely different than from, I think, D&D itself is a genre in itself. It is unlike any other fantasy thing, except then people started reproducing D&D. But it, it's not Lord of the Rings, and it's not Fafford and the Grey Mouser, and it's not Elric or anything. You know, it's it's a mix of all those things to the point where it becomes like an anything can happen, sort of. Anything can fit within a lot of the D&D settings. And just the fact that they, the way the hit points work and the way the spells work, it's all very specific to Dungeons and Dragons. Nothing in fiction is really like that unless they are aping Dungeons and Dragons specifically. So when you're just doing Vikings or Greeks or Egyptians or whatever, Romans, whatever you wanted to do, that is historical, but also might include magic and the power of the gods and uh, maybe monsters, folkloric monsters. Like in this, we had trolls and uh, uh, John Yon, <laughs> probably <laughs> the way it would have been pronounced in this uh, in this particular section. He had been raised by elves, you know, but Norse Nordic elves, as in the stories. It just becomes very much more specific. Like what is magic in this world? What are monsters in this world? What are the cultural norms? What stories can happen? become more specific and more have a flavor of their own. And I, I agree that that takes us away from what might be the the D&D doldrums that some gamers ourselves might have. Speaking on the idea of what is magic in this world, I noticed that on John's character sheet that he uses rune magic. It's not like well described on the character sheet. Do you remember how that rune magic used to work? I actually, I pulled it from GURPS Magic. It's not in the Vikings book, per se. Oh, okay. Like the way GURPS works, you know, it's it's really a toolkit. You can sort of create your own world or adapt anything into anything with reasonable, you know, a success. 
depending. It's, it works better at the lower levels, let's say, than like superheroes are kind of tougher to emulate, whereas pulp heroes might be easier, for example. So in GURPS Magic, what kind of magic do you want? And it d details different systems, you know, plugins, skills that you might use to... So do you want a D&D like learn the spell, cast the spell, you know, like spell book type magic? Do you want to have improvised magic where just you can create anything within the rules, but there's no spell list? Is this how the rune magic worked? Because it seemed like the only description was like, okay, the rune is a word and you can try and do whatever you want around the concept of that yes, word. Yes, that's, that's how rune magic, it's not quite improvised. There's a system for it, obviously, but, and I don't remember us having rune stones with us, but just because I don't remember it doesn't mean it didn't happen. This is the kind of thing that people like Etienne might have had on hand. Yes. Like a bag of runes, okay. you know? Yes. Knowing the runes that you're going to draw means they're just like specific spell effects or general spell effects, but that have to do with earth or have to do with right. whatever, divination. They also have a system for ritualistic magic. Uh, where magic is going to take a while, you know, you got to do it. The, the, it's not a, we don't call it a spell. It's a ritual that calls on the gods and does things. So uh, GURPS magic gives you all of this range of tools. It, it exists there, so it doesn't need to be in the Vikings book. I think I wish it were a bigger part of the Vikings book, you know, like uh, throw us a few pages there in exchange for such a long treatise on Viking law, you know, whatever, whatever you want to sacrifice mm. in there. But rune magic was a way, a very real way to give you that flavor. Like you're not going to be doing rune magic anywhere else. You could, I mean, you could port that to a D&D &D story where your dwarven character uses rune magic. You know, that's, that's per perfectly fine. We're playing Torg Eternity right now and there is a rune magician archetype for dwarves of Isle in that game. So, it, you know, it's dwarves are often associated with Viking culture and exist mm. within the Viking folklore. So it's doable there. But by using this here, it was really bringing that flavor alive. Like as much, again, if we bring it back to the theme that connects these various source books, I want to use as much of it. And Vikings was just like this one adventure. It was just this one story, really. You get back home, your love interest has been kidnapped by trolls, you go and confront the trolls, you, I, we'll talk about that, but it just, was just going to be like this one story, this one mission, this one quest. You want to have as much as possible, I, you know, let's throw in the trolls, let's throw in the runes, let's throw in, uh, as it turns out, Hanafel Fafalafel, Kingboard. The most memorable part of this yes, adventure. Uh, Kingboard is a Viking game that's not unlike chess or checkers or, you know, you know like I said. Gurps Vikings tells you what games they play, how they really lived. And I love that kind of detail and to, to bring it forward, to bring it out in a campaign so that it doesn't feel like this is happening in Waterdeep or whatever. Of course, the real name is unpronounceable to me. So <laughs> Hanafel Flaffel, uh, Hanafel Flaffel, we kept saying that word in various different ways. And it became the joke. It became the joke. And that's why we remember it so much. But you had to play an Apple Fafel against, against the Troll King for the life of, of Simone or uh, Sigurd, as she was called in this version. Which was another nice, interesting detail about Gerb's Viking. Like we changed all the names for all the characters and, and to really fit with the flavor. Yeah, I think my real name was like Fine Hair, but I insisted on being called Fire Hair or something like that. Again, it, it, this was a rare instance of Simone being put under threat. I didn't overuse that trope, I don't think, where the love interest is uh, like the... Because I never played her 
as a damsel in distress in terms of attitude. True. But she's been kidnapped by the trolls, and I kind of love that resolution. The reason they kidnapped her was very folkloric, I guess. You know, it was very fairy tale in a way. Uh, Maybe something out of the sagas, you know, like there's something magical about it. Because she's a singer, and they want her to sing to make them fertile. Or, you know, it's like they need this this song of fertility to be sung. Or their culture, their 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 species is is going to go into shadow, to use the Tolkien terms. And in the end, you guys just created an alliance and promised that she would come back every ten years, or somebody would come back every ten years to sing the song, and keep the, the trolls alive. And it created a, a a friendship between your particular village and the trolls. So I, I kind of like how just the way you look at the notes, the trolls are coming out of the walls. You know, it's, they're, they're unbeatable. This can't be the troll war. Or you guys are going to be, which could have been. I mean, you could have sent it that way, and then I would have been stuck with a war with trolls through various shifts, whatever the trolls would have become. Instead, you created an alliance, and I think that's that was a, a good way for uh, you guys to. And, and this is really the first shift, the first adventure where Sly's character, 12, is part of the group. I do remember him playing a flute. It was a sort of um, ocarina. ocarina, so that's a little... It was like a little bulbous harmonica type thing. Yeah, and that wasn't necessarily part of his character as much as it was part of the player just wanted. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I also remember we played this adventure in an attic for some reason, and it was really hot. Trying to game in the summer where there's a lot of noise in the the, the, the place or whatever. Yeah, I remember that attic. Yeah, Sly would, Sly's a musician in part, and uh, he had like this little... If you've ever seen Captain Harlock, the little girl that is sort of playing... She plays an instrument that Captain Harlock can actually hear in space or something. There's They're always playing on that, like it's the nostalgia of Earth or whatever. Uh, and that's exactly the instrument that Sly was using. And he would sometimes try to play one of the theme songs, like the song that Simone ends up singing was on the soundtrack. You know, it's by some Scandinavian band. That's the song that I remember most from this section. <laughs> And Sly would kind of play the notes to this this song. Uh, so I remember it especially well that he used the instrument. It's on his character sheet. You know, it was part of the character from the beginning, but obviously Sly put it in there because he wanted to have that at the table. Any lessons that we learned in this particular section? Uh, don't play in an attic because it's hard to control the temperature and be comfortable. Well, you know, sometimes you don't have a choice. Yeah, I also remember referencing this book for an English essay about Beowulf, I use one of the Viking proverbs as an epigram. So I guess my lesson, my, my lesson is, you know, just because it's an RPG book doesn't mean it doesn't have good information. Just like to enhance your own culture or your own, your own, you know, knowledge of things, uh, especially the GURPS books, I think very often have very good research behind it. Don't use it as the be-all and end-all, of course, but uh, you can learn a lot just from reading it. Maybe you can skip over the gaming elements. Very often, they're not the main thing in the book. You, you still have 128 pages. You probably have 100 pages of just plain information that is interesting about whatever setting, and many of these settings are historical. So you learn a lot. You really develop one's culture just by reading RPG books. Absolutely. Yeah, and, uh, and, and the professor... Never figured out that this GURPS Vikings by 
<laughs> because you had to reference. I had the references. It was in the back. He didn't know any better. So use it if you have it. I guess one more serious lesson I learned because we, I think we talked about this in a previous podcast, but we actually played Hanefelef at FL yes. during the yes. session and, and bringing a different board game into the session always makes it more fun and memorable. And we've done it. Yeah. I had it in the game master advice at one point talking about that, but I think the game, the mini game element, they do it in video games. You know, your, your guy goes yeah. over to an arcade machine or <laughs> walks into the poker hall and whatever. And there's like these mini games. I think mini games and RPGs really changes the groove. You know, you're doing something and it's like, oh, there's this little sparkly bit that's memorable because you remember breaking it out. Uh, and uh, I've often used that kind of trick, which was harder to do once we started doing online play. But I did manage to do it. We'll talk about that eventually. But that's well worth it whether it's an affle or other. So that was uh, Gerb's Vikings. Any last thoughts before we go? This was an amazing podcast. Thank you for having me. And I can't wait to talk about the next ones as well, because some of my favorites are definitely coming. Okay, up. cool. And some of the more recent ones as well, <laughs> because we're coming up to the the bit where we, we, we dropped out of the game for whatever, 15 years or so. Uh, or more. And then when we come back, well, obviously our memories are going to be much fresher and we can bring Beba back to the group. Thank you, Putwellet, the ace of spade. I'll let you go back to the, uh, the long house and uh, I'll be back after the break with Game Master Advice. See ya, guys. If I were Dungeon Master, I'd have it made. What an interesting proposition. Very well, I shall give you all my power to use as you will. I've personally found a lot of joy in creating soundtracks for my role-playing campaigns. We've talked about it often enough. Uh, to me, the soundscape of a game can not only add to the atmosphere one tries to achieve in certain genres, whether that's techno-punk in a cyberpunk game or eerie music in a horror game, but it can also inform the characters and the setting. In the old days, I worked in radio and I stayed late to explore the station's record collection. These days, while well, we practically have the whole of music to search thanks to Spotify, YouTube, and other services. In terms of diegetic cues, you may want to manifest that spooky orcish drum beat with an oral selection, or set the action uh, at a rock concert. Like I once sent my players to Woodstock and timed events with actual moments from the festival. But that's not building a soundtrack per se. That's a whole other enterprise. When we talk about a soundtrack for a game, it's really that we're seeing it as a movie, or more appropriately, a television show. While you can have songs in there that are specific to certain scenes or events or a one-off villain you've prepared, what makes your song collection a soundtrack is that it includes recurring themes. At a glance, you will need an opening theme to get the players in the mood, a theme for each of the characters, and instrumental themes for such things as travel, fighting, or whatever other activity tends to happen often. You may also have certain environments, a saloon perhaps, that needs diegetic music. The song selected should fit the genre of the game, though the more fantastical the setting, the more leeway you have with the actual genre or period of the music. There's nothing wrong with electric guitars in an old-school Western game, because there are many modern songs with the appropriate country-Western twang you're looking for. And you want to cater to different players' styles as well. Does this cool character feel surfy, while that bruiser is more metal? You might be looking for hybrid music, possibly. An easy trick when you're desperate or running out of time is to look for actual soundtracks and scores from movies or shows or video games that have the same genre or feeling your, your RPG does. 
If the players recognize the tune, it may even help them get into the groove faster. Why wouldn't you use the James Bond or Mission Impossible themes for an espionage game? If you're trying to evoke the space opera of Star Wars, why not steal from that canon? If you're actually playing the Star Wars RPG, there's little reason not to. A soundtrack has several functions in a game. Obviously, there's setting a scene, a tone, an atmosphere. It's also a good way to get a chatty table ready for play. A Pavlovian response will be triggered when you play the opening theme. And similarly, a montage can be initiated with one of the instrumental themes, over which the players are invited to narrate. These are instrumental exactly because you or they will talk over it. But fully instrumental soundtracks are weaker than a mix of instrumental and lyrical pieces. Here's why. Each character's theme, and the opening theme as it relates to the entire group, if it has lyrics, can be coded with information through its lyrics. When you hear a song in a movie, it's more than a question of mood. It's also relating something about what the scene is about, even if it's not normally, nor should it be, a one-to-one -one translation of the action. So a player hearing their character's theme may come to identify with certain parts of the lyric and start integrating those elements into their performance. This says something about my character, I accept it to be true, and it enriches my understanding of them and how I play them. You may be imposing something on them based on your understanding of their characters, but even if you let them pick entirely or from a short list, you have to be involved to ensure the music works within the game's genre and on the same record as the rest. And it's not just about inspiring the players, it's also about inspiring yourself. In choosing a certain song, your own listening may lead you to focus on a lyric and think, mm, yes, I could use that, and then the song will seem even better chosen. I've done that a lot. If a name is spoken in a song, it could be the name of a relevant NPC. Think of it as writing a movie based on a soundtrack rather than the reverse direction, well, a Tarantino special. A found piece of music could inspire an entire adventure. Now, for this to work best, you will want to share it with the players at some point. Maybe not until each song is played, at least once, but early. In the old days, I burned CDs with the songs on them and gave each player a copy. And these days, well, you can make playlists on Spotify and YouTube, and that will achieve the same effect. And you can even update them in between sessions, so as to keep things spoiler-free. I found that players who listen to their disc a lot and when engaged in a campaign they tended to want to, made stronger connections between lyrics and action, and also have stronger memories of those game sessions than players who did not. The music actually cements those memories and unlocks them decades later when they pop the disc back in. With everything going on around the table, including chatty Cathy's who talk over the music even when you'd like a music-only moment, players just won't get the nuances of your selections. So, a way to listen out of session is actually useful. And hey, maybe you'll improve your and your player's musical culture as you do this, which isn't a bad bit of self-improvement either. The Fire & Water Podcast Network has a Patreon page at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. So if you like this content and want more like it, think about leaving a one-time or monthly donation. Let me also remind you that you can leave comments at fireandwaterpodcast.com, on the Fire & Water Facebook page, on Twitter, where we are, fwpodcasts. And so until the next episode, let's roll.
Nefetafel.